Man, I'm so glad you guys are back with us on that Athletes for Justice podcast. This episode is really, really special for me. I got a chance to sit down with a good friend of mine, Adam Thomason. He's not an athlete, but he looks like one. He's 6'5", about 215 maybe pounds. He's an artist. He's a creative. He's an award-winning filmmaker. And we talk about faith, about justice, about hope. But I just pressed record and we and, and halfway through our introduction. And so you're going to hear us hop into a pretty interesting conversation about Adam pretending to be a football player. Hope y'all enjoy. <laughs> Bro, I'm, I'm legit mad at you because I'm sitting here and I'm like, you're, you're like 6'5", six 6'5", five, six five, you know, do something, posing like a football player. I'm like, and then, so then there was that. And then the price, I'm on the price is wrong right oh, now. Bro. And so I'm like, come on. Because that's me. Like, we could be an extra in this movie. <laughs> and I'm so mad at, I'm low-key mad at Dontoya right now. But I get it because my wife would be the same way. She'd be she like, would. yeah, 100%. Like, we, we came here for this. Let's do this. And I'm like, the thing about, like, I wouldn't have, I would have just stayed and been an extra and been like, hey, hey, babe, like, let's, <laughs> like, I know you're hungry, but <laughs> something else came up. <laughs> Sam, listen to me. That was the biggest L. That was the biggest <laughs> L. To this day, we still joke. I was like, babe, remember that's how we did get home? Oh. And, we, and, and you ended up hungry. That, that's what tops it all off. <laughs> or know? like took some food and took a box and brought it back or something. You know Bro. what I mean? Like, But uh, even on the football thing, here, here's, here's why I started doing it. Is because uh-huh. one time we went to, I think it was... I think it was the NCAA or something. It was it was some event at the uh, Phoenix Stadium, mm-hmm. and um, a dude just kept walking beside me, and and he's like, he's like, man, who you play for? I was like, what? He's like, who you play for? I was like, man, I don't play for nobody. Now in my head, I f- I forget that they really don't recognize football players like that unless you're somebody like real, really famous. Right. Right. So I'm like, bro, you would know you would, but I go, oh, he don't know. I was like, man, I don't play. I don't play. Then he's like, man, what's your name? What's your name? I was like, Adam He's like, man, what's your real name, bro? Like, <laughs> damn, he would not let it go, dog. <laughs> so, so he goes, so we, he just walked with me the entire time, bro. He still don't believe me. This dude goes, he was like, man, Man, you just being humble, dog. Can I, just, just let me get a quick pick, right? Right. And I was like, man, let me get this dude his picture, dog. That, that's how I start. He would not let it go. And that's the thing, and like, the, and you get it because you spend a lot of time around athletes, and even and even like um, entertaining all these things, and and you like you like it's there is like this fault, not a false humility, but like, yeah, you know, I'm I'm not I don't play for anybody. I'm not a you know I'm not famous, whatever. Knowing good and well, you do. And so, like, people thought you were, like, trying to be this humble dude, you know? Right. <laughs> so, the fact that you took – and then that wasn't the only time, though. It seems no, like it was. It, it's not the only time, bro. Like, and then I, I'll say the the other thing. Like, if I'm hanging out with Cray, yep. they they really not going to believe me. Like, if we somewhere, <laughs> people taking pictures, <laughs> right, 6'5", dude, in shape. And they're like, man, what you do? I was like, man, I, you know, I'm a filmmaker. Oh, man, you just saying that. <laughs> That's the thing, bro, because we do that. Like people that like, we do that. Oh yeah, for sure. Like people be look at me, hey man, so so what's your name? Oh, uh, you know, what do you who do you play for? Uh, you know, I just, you know, I, I do art. I do art. Oh, come on, man. What do you do? Oh, I'm a golf I'm a golfer, something random. So like when he, they hear you, I'm a filmmaker, I'm a creative. Come on now, bro. Who like 
is it are you like are you playing for the Cavs? Are you playing is it NBA, MLB? Okay. It, so they're like it's falling right in line with all the other stuff I've heard. Oh, exactly <laughs> in line, bro. Exactly in line. Um, oh, this book is dope, bro. There's so much I want to talk about, but um oh, and we even you. we even need a chat too, but permission to be black. Yeah. Um like you and I a couple months ago, well, we've known each other since probably 2012, 13 or so back in Arizona. Yeah. yeah. Um and kind of kept in touch up close from afar. Like you've been there for me. And I think you know about this in a lot of ways. We're just I'm trying to figure out life and stuff yeah. and things. Yeah. And even just a simple text message encouragement. Obviously, your relationship with, with Cray and so many other people. But um, but you specifically, you mm. specifically, you and I, we uh, had some conversations on ways we could make change. And in those time, in those types of conversations in the black community in right. America, right. like I just realized how deep you were, man. I was like, man, like I I just need to learn from you. And so um, I guess one question <clears throat> I wanted to ask, and we're diving right into it, is yeah. what does it mean to be black? Mm. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that, that's that a good a question. Whole, yeah, yeah. No, I think, that's, I think that's an excellent question. So I will foundationally, so it, it's not a long answer, but we could build on it. I will foundationally say in America – having what we call black skin, brown skin, that alone makes you black because that comes with the, the quote unquote expectations, um, the responsibility, the uh, prejudices that no background, like, you know, you having a Nigerian cultural connected background upbringing. Sure. But, they're not going to see that when they pull you over. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? And so my wife always said, if you have black skin, you retain your blackness, hmm. which I think is so powerful because there's no resume floating over our head when we're just out and about. And I, and I think the average person who's not black, so to speak, doesn't understand that. And then Carter G. Woodson says the miseducated Negro believes education and success will somehow remove this stigma of blackness. Like, OJ, I'm not black, I'm OJ. And that's why Jay-Z goes like, okay, like they go, they'll treat you the same. And they did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> wow. Right? You know, one of, one of, to me, one of his, his greatest famous lines is the response is like, okay, you're not black? Okay. We'll see. Mm-hmm. And we saw, hmm. you know, that resonates so much because I think about like as an athlete and, and my brother talked about this and, and, and a lot of my friends have talked about this, mm-hmm. how there's almost a celebrity card you can play. Right. I've been mm-hmm. pulled over before and, and at times, whether I'm in Austin, Texas, I play football there, whether I'm in Chicago or wherever, my first response is, Hey, I played for the bears or I, played at UT and oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes that will give me a pass. Okay. Oh, just a warning, whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. But then we just started seeing, I started talking to more people um, who like after we saw George Floyd murdered, after we saw Maude Arbery murdered and even some of the stuff we've been talking about, we've been talking obviously long before that, but sitting and talking with some other black athletes, they said, man, they don't care that I play football or basketball or, or whatever. Yeah. It's the fact that I'm black. They see that first before mm-hmm. they even see, oh, you're 
you play for my favorite team. Right. Like you said, that PhD doesn't just, you know, rise up over your head or. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that, and I think that's crucial, Hmm. you know, cause we, you know, sometimes we as, as black folks, depending on like the class we come from education, right. Upbringing, we can do that to each other. And I think what, 2014 going, like, if we go Trayvon Martin, just saying that, that's a post. So if we go from 2014 all the way to the present, I think it woke up even black people to say, nah, brown skin, right? That skin connects us all in some way, shape, or form, despite the class and upbringing. Hmm. In your book, Permission to be Black, which comes out, well, actually, it comes out pretty soon. When does it come out? February 23rd. So, like, so this it'll come out right around when this podcast is releasing. Okay. Um, so if you haven't got it yet, go get it, y'all. It'll be in the link. You talk about these cheat codes, mm. some cheat codes about being about kind of learning how to cope with trauma. That's at least yeah. what I was really resonating with. The yeah, time. yeah, yeah. Um, how do? It's going to be a, a a deep question, but come on, give it. What is trauma? That's good. So I, I, in the book, and for those listening, I always start off saying like, hey, trauma, we can kind of, sometimes we, we liken it to, you know, war vets, you know, like, hey, man, I saw people blowing up and my brother's killed, things like that. But trauma is, is any situation that triggers you to a response. And most people will say a response for defense, right? Uh, defense mechanism. So any, any startling, uh, it could be emotional, physical situation that Trump, that, that triggers a de- defense response, right? So, uh, you know, I, I joke in the book that I have a dog, a stray dog trauma, right? If, if, if I see, I don't care where I'm at. I could be in the lily white suburb. If I see a dog <laughs> off the leash, bro, my first trauma response is to look for a car to jump on. Yes, yes. Because it's not even run. Because that's my thing, too. I don't, people don't know this. I don't like dogs. Like, I don't do well with dogs at all either. Really? I got my sister, when she, we were little, she got chased by the neighbor's dog. And okay. I, I, I believe it bit her. I don't, in my mind, the dog ripped her arm off. Like, that's what happened <laughs> in my mind. And so anytime I see a dog, I'm like, all right, let me go somewhere. Let me do something. And you can't run because apparently okay. dogs sense fear. So the, they do, you know, so you got it too. I got right? it too. <laughs> I got it too. <laughs> uh, you know, so they would say that's a mild trauma, right? So obviously traumas can build, you know, um, another, uh, an increasing trauma could be like, Hey, if the cops come behind you as a, as a black person, there are certain things you're running through your mind that if you're not black, you just don't run through your mind. You know, some of us might think through like, and these are real conversations. Hey, did it, is my Siri location automatic record set up, right? Did I set it up, right? So if you say, hey, Siri, start recording and let people know where my location is, the, f- the phone goes automatically. Um, hey, do, you know, if somebody has a license to carry, like, hey, do I got weapons in the car? What did I do? I feel like, yeah, I'm going to right speed, things like this. It's some people, they go as far as like, if this is my time, will I, will I be the next hashtag? Right. Those are, that's, you know, that's trauma. Mm. Right. Because it's, it's, it's giving you a, a knee jerk response because of something 
you know, some people may say dreadful, fearful, uh, harsh, uh, painful, hard thing happened. And so now there's a, there's a defense or a reaction that's caused in your body, like your body just defaults to it. Mm. So my next question is going to be, and you talk about it obviously in your book, but how do we handle trauma? But even on a deeper level, why do we need to handle trauma? Because I think there's conversations, right, about yeah. as a man or as a black man or, mm-hmm. or even, as, even as a professional, because not everyone who's listening to this podcast is, is a man or a black man. So as a professional yeah. or in the business setting, yes, I've experienced trauma, but I, I'm just going to deal with it because yeah. it just is what it is. Yeah. Why do we need to handle trauma? No, that's a good deal question. With trauma, yeah. That's a good question. Um, because I, I would say the way our bodies are made up, again, what, what I've learned through counseling, reading, things like that, the way our bodies are made up, um, I call our emotions that we have in our bodies, they're the taste buds of the soul, right? So just like you, I mean, you could, but you wouldn't serve people food, even if it's healthy. It's like, man, you just got to eat this. You know, this is good for your body. It's like, but it tastes terrible. Oh, you just got to deal with it. <laughs> you're getting fed, aren't you? Aren't you yeah. getting some good food? We don't, we don't treat people like that because they have actual taste buds. Well, that's what emotions are. Our bodies are made with emotions. And the emotions help us process the good and the bad. So when something bad happens to us, you can verbalize and say, hey, that hurts. It's like food. It allows it to process through your system the best way and out of the body. And so when you don't deal with trauma, just like with processed foods or terrible foods or hydrogenated oils, what happens is it goes into your body and it stays there. Right. And then with food that's processed and that good, guess what the body does? It has to create these fat cells and that's how we get obesity and things like that. Well, from an emotional standpoint, it stays in your body. And so with books like Body Keeps the Score, people develop like autoimmune diseases because it is. They, their neurology, like their neurological framework really changed because they're harboring these emotions that they haven't been able to deal with to get out of their system. Right. So you got that. I mean, we can go basic level when you don't deal with certain traumas. You can lash out. So you got the people who are lashers. You got the people who are overeaters. You got the people who are culpers and uh, addicted, right? You got the people who do struggle with certain diseases, right? And these are things I'm just pulling from, whether it's Dr. Carolyn Leaf, uh, who's a neuroscientist, uh, Vanda Kirk in his book, uh, Body Keeps the Score, Dr. Nia D, who is at Yale. He's a neuroscientist. So all these people have verified this research, Right. And, and just in relationship, if you don't process trauma, it'll come out like it will come out. Was there a time, <clears throat> whether in your marriage or relationship with friends mm-hmm. or family, where unprocessed trauma came out in a, in a, in a way that you didn't expect? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I would say like, so there was one time. I mean, so many stories, but there's one time we were newly married, living in Texas, and I've been married for 14 years for those who are listening. So we were newly married, and I just wasn't processing little things, 
in our marriage from what my wife was doing in the sense of it wasn't her fault. It was mine. I just wasn't saying like, Hey, that hurt me and keeping it, keeping the slate clean. Right. (laughs) So we got into some argument that ended up being bigger in my mind than what it really was because I let all these other things stack. And she, she did a response, but the response triggered me back to Detroit. Like if somebody says something like this, you'd be like, Oh, it's go time. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Cause I, at this time I, I, I haven't, I didn't go see a counselor. So I didn't process any of my story. I ain't process any of the trauma growing up, the beast, yada, yada, yada. And so she said something and I was like, Oh, she's trying to take it there. Like, literally, like my mind just defaulted to Detroit. Like, oh, she's trying to take it there. And y'all got to understand, I ain't lived in Detroit since 1998. So this might have been, you know, 2010. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, so you're like, bro, you need to chill out. But um, so she she does that. And it just out comes. And I just was like, heated so she ended up leaving with our oldest at the time and I was so mad like unjustifiably so mad that I, I was like man literally in my mind I go what can I break I was like I can't break that I can't break that I was like and I saw her phone I was like man I'm about to just obliterate this phone <laughs> like <laughs> And well, everything I had, it was like a, a flip phone. And I, I just, I mean, I probably need to be broken anyway. But I just, <laughs> and, and also, I was like, bro, you tripping. Like, then she came back. She was like, where's my phone? You know, you like, you eating the crow. You're like, I broke it. She was like, you did what? I broke it. She goes, why? I was like, well, you said, you know, now you're talking all low. Well, you said this and, you know, and, and she was like, where's my phone at? And she saw what I did to the phone. She's like, bro, that this is not okay. Obviously, it's not okay, but she's like, this is not okay. And and literally, that was like, and it, and it wasn't, even as I'm talking, it wasn't just the, the stuff that she said. Again, it was this whole history of trauma of you got to protect yourself. And I'm not going to let you hurt you before you, uh, I, I'm going to hurt you before you hurt me. Mm. G- Going back to Detroit, yeah. So we always talk about. I think some people see black people, and they just feel like they all have the same background, same yeah. experience, same, right? <laughs> I mean, true. I think that's what some people, yeah. Yeah. And so for me, you talk about we talked about it at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah. I have a Nigerian background, so for yeah. me, I'm like, yeah, my parents grew up in Nigeria, and I yeah. and I go there all the time, and I, you know, and, you know, the, you know, had a, I grew up in, and I went to a private school, and all yeah. these things, but. um but also that doesn't take away like being pulled over at times, right? But but then you talk about growing up in Detroit. You talk about that in your book and even just from me knowing you. And yeah. I have friends who grew up in Detroit as well. Some of my former coaches, former teammates. Yeah. Can you walk <laughs> us through a day? <laughs> like from maybe from getting up, maybe to going to school or even at, like talk us through a day. Just so people can understand yeah. what, what, what a different type of experience or trauma looks like. Yeah, I, I'll give you... You know, in a good synopsis, I'll give you my my high school day, and then I'll give you middle school day, cool, or elementary school day, just for people. So, so you don't understand, yeah. like Adam, like you're <laughs> creative, you're a creative, you're an artist, you're a you're an author, like you've you've really like 
in, in, in almost every sense of the word, like you have a lot of success. Yeah. You know what I mean? And obviously mm-hmm. we're all growing and we're all yeah. doing those things, but also there's like a, I think sometimes just to pull back the veil, there's also a deeper like understanding of some people's experiences. Yeah. So that's why I'm asking like, what was that day like for you? Just yeah. so people don't hear, oh, you breaking phones? Like what, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. So um, I say typical day in, in high school, my dad would not have been in the house at this time. Yeah, because he left when I was 12. So I would have been in seventh grade when he left the, the household. So typical day, typical day in house in, in, in Detroit, you get up at five. Now we lived in a crip neighborhood. So this this matters, right? Um, so you get up at five. You got to get ready. You got to be at the bus stop while it's still dark. The city bus stop. <laughs> while it's still dark by 6 a.m. Myself, Why? my brother and sister. Why? Because it takes an hour. You know, my mom is like, we not take you to school. Our neighbor who actually worked at the school, was uh, the school was an hour away. Um, she was like, we not take you. And so we had to catch city transportation. Now, if you catch a city transportation in Detroit, you got to know the streets like pimps, uh, crack addicts, prostitutes. This this is the city transportation in Detroit. Yes, it's, it, it's for the blue collar, but it's also for people who just, they just pass it through society. They just trying to, you know, uh, prey on the innocent, maybe trying to find a young drug dealer to hustle, maybe trying to find a woman they could turn to being a prostitute. So you got to understand that a lot of these bus rides weren't like, hey, we're going on the city transportation. Right? <laughs> so so the, 12, 14, 15. Exactly. Right. So you, you're going through that and you're going through, you know, people who are, you know, uh, raising dogs to fight and you may see some straight dog or you at least see these dogs jumping like as high as the 10 foot fence. You're like, man, these dogs. So it, it's kind of like a, a, a Saturday afternoon special movie. Like you walk out, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's night outside and you like, <laughs> you like, man, I got on the right colors because, you know, so-and-so just, just got jumped for his shoes and his starter jacket. He got killed. So you make your way. It's about three or four blocks away to this bus stop. And real right? quick, I don't want to pause you, but I have yeah, to. Yeah, that's fine. You, you said, I grew up in a crip neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. So explain that for people. Yeah. Please. Yeah. So essentially, uh, crip neighborhood, they wear blue, right? So you got to just be mindful of the colors that you wear because if you have on the wrong colors, Red would be the the most one, but you can have other identifiers on. You get jumped, right? You got to be aware of gang initiations, right? So don't go down here at this time, right? Um, so it's it's the way I explain it to people is once you leave the door, your stress level is on. That's what that's what a lot of people don't realize. You got to read the streets you got to read this person hey why is this person talking to me so now you now you got to put on the stone cold face because if you like smile hey how's it going they're like oh we about to get him or we about to get her so i'm the youngest of three i have an older brother and middle sister so you got to put on a poker face like i would say detroit people if you've been around them <laughs> they, they hard to read bro if you go to be there. <laughs> and you can tell i feel like you can tell when somebody's from detroit because i'm like okay you, the, 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 the slang, the talk, the way I'm like, okay, yeah, you're from Detroit. Yeah. So you get on this bus and it's going through different stops along the way. 
the the worst one was Dexter, but there's a lot of Dexter, Finkel, and all these places are stops to where people can get on the bus and it represents a different version of gangs, a different version of pimp area, prostitute area, you know, um, alcohol, alcoholics, you know, we call them winos, but areas getting on the bus, right? So you got to navigate through all that. And you got different people. So if you from this one area and people will know, they just know, hey, you from this area, six mile, hey, you from this area, Dexter. And they'll just start some stuff with you if they see it on your face. Like, man, this dude weak, man. We about to try this dude on the bus. And so you, it's, it's that <laughs> that you're going through. And, and listen to me, it's every day right (laughs) and so you got to go through that gauntlet i call it we call it the hour-long gauntlet just to get to school so now you get to school right so you got there you get there at 6 a.m roughly the bus will be there by 6 a.m so you get on the bus 605 you get off at 705 and if you look it up this place called cast corridor they cleaned it up but when we went there from what my brother graduated 95 so between Let's just say in the 90s, late 80s and 90s, like the crack epidemic. Hmm. So the 80s and through the 90s, the crack epidemic, that's when all of us went to school. Now, Cass Corridor was notoriously the worst place for like crack, prostitution, pimping, all this stuff. And that's where our school was. So the bus stop is south of that corridor and you had to walk through that corridor to get to school. <laughs> like, so that's every day. Like literally it's every day. That's, that's your whole high school. And then on the flip side, imagine, cause I went to this crazy elementary school. My brother and sister didn't go there, but on the flip side, imagine the same schedule, but I had to walk a mile to school. So it was no ride. So I had to walk and navigate certain streets at nighttime, whether it's nighttime rain and things like that. So imagine that gangs, colors, mm. you know, dogs, things like that. So even at elementary, I remember, in, a, in another book I have, I talk about how you just saw people get jumped all the like daily, all the time. Like if I, I give people this, this is this is this is Detroit and this is elementary school. Right. So you got to remember, I, I might be 10. Hmm. Dude takes my lunch money. I go tell the teacher and the you know person in charge. Hey, hey, Miss Jones, Ms. Jones, dude took my lunch money. He goes, well, beat him up and take him back then. Take it back. That teacher. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the teacher. That's the teacher, bro. <laughs> See, now it makes sense. I got one of my coaches. One of my coaches. Uh, he actually he's coaching the Super Bowl now. Uh, Larry okay. Foot. I play with them. I play with them. Yeah, Larry. You know, so do I, like do a lot of Detroit people know each other? Up, yeah, we know each other. Yeah, we grew up playing baseball together. Okay, good. So if you hit him, be like Foot. Uh, you grew up playing baseball. At AT say Barney Mikowski. He will flip out that you know Barney Mikowski league. If you can remember that, Barney I'm gonna, him, I'm gonna text league. him right after Barney. Barney Mikowski. Barney, like Barney the yeah, 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 purple Barney. dude. Barney yeah. Mikowski baseball league. I'm gonna text him because he he would tell these stories. Yeah, man, fighting every single day. Detroit, Detroit. And I'm like, come on, foot, you're not fighting every day. No, man, every day. And I'm like, you're not. And like, but literally every person I talk to is from Detroit has this story. So it's real. Yeah. And he went to Persia. He went to one of the worst schools. Like he, he, and now was on the east side. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when we talk about trauma and I'm, I'm, I'm literally, as soon as we get off, I'm a text foot. I might take a picture and let him know we just, yeah, come thing. on. Yeah. Um, so you talk about trauma and talk about an experience growing up. Because my first thought is, well, the school's an hour away. Why not go to a closer school? Yeah. 
or are there closer schools? And maybe why couldn't your parents take you to school? Mm. I mean, I'm just, I'm trying to figure out mm. like how, how can we make that not be the experience for everyone? Yeah. So that's a good question. So for my experience, you know, dad not there and my mom, she was a probation officer. So just imagine what she was seeing in Detroit. Right. And, you know, I talk about the shooting in the book, but she was just tired. She'd tell you, like, I'm tired. Y'all. I, you know, I'm not taking y'all to school. So <laughs> you got that element. And then Cass was a public school, but it was a college prep school. So it was the better of the Detroit schools, if you will. So that's why we, you know, they thought it was worth it to go our way. But if you talk about the closer, closer schools, like the Mumfords or the Centrals where Antonio Gates went, Mm. Like Antonio tell you, they, they weren't like educational schools, like the, the McKenzie's and the, those schools. They, you go in there to just make it through and you're going to get in some fights. Like it's not for education. Mm. So, I mean, even that right there, the fact that there are schools that are for education, like that blows my mind. I went, yeah. like, cause in, in my mind, you, you go to school to get an yeah, education and go exactly. to college. Like it just makes, it should make sense. Yeah. And where'd you, where'd you go in Texas? So I went to, I went to a, 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 a private school, college oh. prep, all boys. Like okay. it was a very, um, which one? Uh, St. Mark school of Texas. Okay. Where is that at? It's in Dallas. It's, um, it's in Dallas, in North Dallas. Okay. So I, like I want to say another. So some, well, some people went to that school. Like, so like, um, Kids who won the national spelling bee went to okay. that school. Some like presidents, like Perot, the Perot okay. kids or grandkids yeah. went there. Okay. Um, it was a different experience. It was, it was literally like you're going to go to school. There yeah. wasn't fight. I think I got into one fight. One. Okay. Okay. And that was like a bully who was picking on some other kid. And I was a big kid. He was a big kid. We were the only two big kids, like we're the biggest of the kids. Yeah. And I felt like I was this hero, right? He, we were playing soccer. It was, it's not Detroit. So y'all don't judge me. Um, <laughs> we were playing soccer on our, you know, on our little playground, our big old field that we had. Yeah. And this big kid, he kicked the ball in someone's face. I think this is the time where like, I'm probably six, sixth grade or something like that, 12, 13. Mm-hmm. But like mm-hmm. where I really realized there was this passion for justice may not be the right word, but just righting or wrong. Yeah. It was bigger. Like, you know, some kids hit puberty before everybody else. Yes, and they he do. was that guy. He was that guy. Did he have a beard too? The he had a beard. He had a beard. Like a mustache. I'm like, How do you have I know a that dude. I know this guy. Like, it made no sense. You know, exactly. I think we all know this guy. And so, and so literally like he kicked the ball into somebody's face. And we also yeah. had another kid too named Chad who, um, I don't know what kind of ailment he had, but he, yeah. he walked with a limp and he used uh, use like a, 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 a staff, a walker, whatever to, to walk. Yeah. And I believe it was Chad who he hit in the face. Really? Right. And I was a guy cause I was a bigger kid. So I was, I'd be the one who was usually picked first for, you know, if we're doing sports, whatever, I'd be the captain and whatever. And so, but I would always make sure that Chad wasn't picked last. Mm, okay. Cause, cause I, two things, one, like, I don't think it's fair for anybody to always be picked last number one. Yeah. And number two, in my mind, I'm so good. We're still going to win regardless of who yeah. we have, you know, I like so, that. Right. That's just my mentality. Yeah. And so, so it was a, it was a dual, it was a duality. The dual, the one piece was like, I wanted him to make sure he felt loved. Yeah. But the other piece was we're, we're still winning, you know what I mean? Yeah. So you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> and so he kicked the, he kicked the ball and I believe it was Chad in Chad's face. Like he was like mm. six feet away. Wasn't far at all. Kicked it as hard as he could. 
boom, hit him in the face. Chad had freckles. And so like he was like, like he had like pale skin. So his face yeah. got immediately red. Yeah, yeah, Immediately yeah. just red. Yeah. And just everywhere, Brett. And, and, and this dude, I was about to say his name. Let me not say his name because he might yeah. be listening. <laughs> he just started laughing, like just oh, uh, like yeah. laughing, like, and his friends started laughing. And I'm sitting there like, like, just something started like boiling inside of me. Yeah. How dare you? Yeah, this is not okay. It's not okay. Number one, yeah. like if it was an accident, I get it, go apologize. But did either you did it on purpose? And even if you didn't, the fact that you're laughing about it, you think it's right. okay. It's not okay. Whether it was Chad or anybody else, that's not okay. Yeah. And so I don't know what happened. I just remember going to just push him. <laughs> and I and I and I pushed him. Yeah. Um, and I think he tried to came and push me back. And next thing I knew, he was in a headlock. Um, and okay. I, I, you know, and I didn't know what to do. I wasn't swinging anything like that, but I had him in a headlock. They're like, "Get off, get off!" And I just, I just like they separated us, and yeah. and now this dude was he he had turned red too because he was so mad. Anyways, yeah. and I just remember feeling vindicated. Mm, yeah. And yes, I, I, they didn't put me in detention, but the teacher tried to, you know, I, I, don't know, I got in trouble or something. But yeah, yeah. I just remember feeling vindicated because something about what he did wasn't right. Yeah, and I did something about it. That's good. So let's talk about some things that aren't right yeah. and what we can do mm-hmm. about them. Two, not even two months ago, probably three, four months ago now, um, you, me, a couple friends of ours started saying, man, what are some ways we can make change, like si- address some of the systemic issues, whether it comes to education, mm-hmm. whether it's with uh, policing or policy mm-hmm. or the um, criminal justice system? Mm-hmm. And it got to a point where it was like, this is just, it's everywhere. Like systemic and systematic injustice. It's so pervasive. It was almost like, man, where do we start and what do we have and how do we use what we have to start? Right. And I think I'm still trying to help answer that question. And I think this podcast is one way of trying to express that. Um, I've done some work in Chicago trying to express that. You do, you've done a ton of work in Atlanta and you're still doing stuff that, behind the scenes in Atlanta to yeah. try and address this. I, I don't know how much is kind of open public to talk about. No, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like Goshen. How about Goshen. that? Let's go there. Yeah, Let's yeah. go there. I think that's. I think that's a good place to start. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so you you ask the question like, what is wrong? I think if you're talking about it from from this from this standpoint of people who have black skin, we're gonna see more justifiably wrong than most. And I use the term justifiably because, you know, Malcolm X had this, he had this phrase, if you have a knife 10 inches in my back, you remove it five inches. (laughs) The, The person who has a knife in the back, they'll call that progress, right? But he goes, it's not progress. You see what I'm saying? And so a lot of times what we consider progress Hey, you know, Adam gets to go to school and get an education. Sam got a full ride scholarships. And now he's a, you know, black athlete and professional. They'll say that's progress. But what true historians would say is that's where we should have started the conversation. So when, when something is so traumatic, and the trauma stops, it's easy to call it progress, but that's not progress. It's just called equity. And so what we celebrate a lot is people getting 
equitable uh, rights, which which is good. But in the ideal sense, we all should have started with equality. And that's the problem. Right. So, you know, even as you, you know, you talk about the stuff you do in Chicago when it comes to food. Like we just we we could just talk about food, the food deserts. Like I, I moved from Phoenix to Atlanta, in Atlanta proper. The options of food, healthy food in Phoenix. Oh my gosh, it was so many, right? Raw vegetables, understanding recipes, taste good, building up the immune system, spirituality. All this stuff is five minutes away everywhere where I'm at. And you know, Phoenix doesn't have a high population of African Americans. But yet still, it wasn't a food desert. I moved to Atlanta. Everything's fried, mostly fried. KFC, Wendy's, McDonald's, Subway, you know, gravy this, you know, sauce that. And I'm saying this is even the produce that you find at the supermarkets aren't as quality as the ones you'll find in the suburbs at the Whole Foods. Why is it not a Whole Foods? in these black spaces, right? So you see this off, right? The, you know, if the lights go out, I always text my friends in the suburbs. If, if the power goes out because of the storm, I'm always saying like, how long does it take in this area versus that area, right? So you got service, you know, availability, things like that. And, you know, I was talking to my sister. She's a doctor over healthcare and medicine in DC. She was saying one of the biggest problems when it comes to COVID is she said it. No, it's racism. It's medicine has racial issues. Like the, the availability of the vaccines and how the, the black and poor are being treated even during COVID. Right. So in my head, when I think of Goshen, Goshen in the, in the scriptures was a place. It was a haven for God's people. And it was a haven for people who were in need. So I, I believe that minorities, and I'll say again, if you have black skin, you're part of that minority. We're, we're, not, we're the only ones that are going to understand how to create a haven for the things I just mentioned. I only mentioned three. There's much more that we could talk about. And so that's, that's what, what you know, a group of us are trying to do. We're trying to, in a, in, a, in a big sense, we're trying to build a city like a literal city, that's a haven. And there's a lot of tangible steps to that, but we're just trying to piece those things together. Mm. I mean, we only named a few, you know what I mean? Like we only named right, a few. Right, right. In medicine, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have someone on. <clears throat> One of my friends is, a, is an ophthalmologist. We went to school together, went to University of Texas, and we were both in the business honors program. And she also was doing pre-med as well. And I went on to the NFL. She went on to medical school and fast forward about 10 years later, um, you know, I'm just finishing my NFL career and she just became a doctor in ophthalmology. And I was in Austin not too long ago. And she, you know, she gave me an eye test. I came for my glaucoma test. Yeah. And we were talking about how she was saying how oftentimes I believe in the black community, things like glaucoma go either untested or unnoticed or, Mm. or people don't even address it. And I, and, and I, and we talked a little bit about how med like the, the race issue in medicine. Yeah. And I'm like, well, she were, I said, what do you mean? And she's, she's Indian. She's from Indian descent. I said, okay. well, what do you, what do you mean? She said, well, oftentimes 
black people get worse treatment in hospitals than people people of with other other skin colors. I said, why do you? Why is that? Yeah. She said, oh, it was taught in medical school. <laughs> oh, I said, I said wait. I said, <laughs> oh, wait, really? What? She said, she said, what we learned, like, not, like at least before, like now it's changed now, but yeah. back in the day in medical school, the, yeah. it was, the, the teaching was that uh, black people had fewer nerve endings mm. in their bodies. So they didn't feel pain okay. as much as other yeah. you know, races. Gotcha. Going back to the Sarah Bartman treatment. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. And so she's saying like, and of course, like, everyone feels pain. Like why, like why would we say, well, we're not going to treat you as, as good because you don't feel as much pain. Like mm. it makes no sense. And yet it's been corrected, but man, it causes so many deaths, yeah. so much unnecessary pain yeah. because well, y'all, y'all can handle it. Yeah. Y'all can handle it. Mm-hmm. Yet <clears throat> as humans, we know, right. We all have, you talked about, I love what you said about how, Emotions are a taste bud for the soul. You wouldn't mm-hmm. just get food with no taste. Right. You know what I mean? And, and emotions, like the, your body keeps the score. And so whether you're black or white or Hispanic or whatever, we all have emotions. We right. all have trauma. And some people deal with it. Some people don't. Some people address it. Some people don't. Yeah. And for me, even just hearing that, the 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 teaching was that black people don't feel pain. It's you're gonna be fine. Like that just blew my mind. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I'm gonna bring up the name so people can research. So we, we're uh, trying to get this documentary funded because a, a scientist in his organization came to myself and my team and said, "Hey, what do you what would it take to get COVID to zero? And, you know, I heard you do work in Atlanta, stuff like this. And I said, well, if you want to get COVID to zero, you got to um, you got to include black folks, but you got to tell their story. Right. And so he was like, man, what are some of the things that you got? We got to consider. And I seen you what I seen him. But I said, <clears throat> the first thing you got to talk about is is why there's black hesitancy when it comes to medicine and vaccines, you know, Tuskegee experiment, 1972. But this is, this is the guy, um, J Marion Sims. He did a lot of testing on black women with no anesthesia. And because in their minds, there's no way someone humanly could make it through this stuff. They have to be stronger. They didn't even see their racism. Like you're not, <laughs> you're the one not giving them anesthesia, right? And then you got the uh, black Venus Sarah Bartman, right? So even to, even to that point is historically, the majority culture doesn't take into account the practices they did that created their own bias. It's not like we showed up like, yo, don't give me no anesthesia. You know what I'm saying? We tough out here. That's, that's not what we did. You know? So it's, it's trying to show people like, look, though, though in, in this series of documentaries, though black folks have been this quote unquote minority, they've been the key piece and turning the civil war. They've been the key piece in building up the military and the funds and the finances. Cause if you, if you don't have slavery, right. Anybody know about establishing 
countries, you got to establish the military force, you got to establish a workforce, and you got to establish money. Well, if you go back to the 13 colonies, they were oversold in, in tobacco debts. And I'm pulling this from um, the half that's never been told. And so what slavery did, it allowed now the United States of America to build up their money to pay back their debts then to militarize themselves to become the power that they did. You don't have that without black folks, right? That's one of the key pieces, right? And then you got medicine, you got Henrietta Lacks, her cells were stolen. And guess what? Her cells are still being used for medicine to, as we would say in the, in the, you know, the, the God community to bless the lives and the people of America, Henrietta Lacks. Right. So you got that, you know, so slavery, what it did in finances, what we did in civil war, Henrietta Lacks, what we did in medicine. People would point to no matter what, where you stand at, but people would point to voting, you know, even now in this election. So I always say it's this we've been considered the least common denominator, but in a play on words, we've been the common denominator, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so. Last thing before yeah. we close, because I think it's important. I don't know. I talk about this in my book and let the world see you how, you know, the importance of of therapy, yeah. of counseling, mm-hmm. of just letting it out of your body, yeah. keeping the score. Mm-hmm. Don Furious. Hey. <laughs> Don Furious. Tell us, tell us about Don Furious. Yeah, so I got connected with him, a uh, mutual friend. So hopefully y'all read the book, but if you don't, in 2017, I was just at the lowest of low points. And I came back from this trip in Nepal. I got to stop you real quick. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. How did you get there? Because I, cause I, you know, people talk, I got to the lowest low, you know what I mean? And we yeah. don't have to go into great, great yeah. detail, but how did you get to that point? Yeah, that's a good question. So I got to this low point because, you know, with the Detroit mindset, and I'm sure Larry would say this, you just endure. Like, no one, you don't have an option but endurance. But when you endure, you got to kill your high emotions of joy and you got to kill your low emotions of pain. You just, in the middle, stagnant the whole time, right? And so I was living there since I was 12, you know, my dad left when I was told my mom was severely wounded, shot five times. And so she laid up, you know, my brother's the oldest at the time, 15, 13, 12, myself. And so it's go time. Oh, yeah. And to, make, and to put another layer on top of it, my sister filled in this blank. This is not in the book. But I said, I said, Angie, did we have to go to school the next day after we saw mom in the hospital after she was shot? She said, yeah, we had to go the next day. I go, why? She said, because our um, guardian at the time said, you should not put your life on hold because something bad happens. <laughs> Bro, now, now she just get filled that in three weeks ago. Now mm-hmm. think about that. A 12-year-old, 15-year-old, 13-year-old. So all we knew, like, okay, well, we don't even put our life on hold to process our mother being shot. Mm-hmm. So, and, and to this day, I mean, Don and talking with him, but to this day, 
no one ever asked you like, hey man, how'd you feel seeing your mom like that? What did that do? Like you had to go to school and and think about presidents and math, right? Mm. So, <laughs> so right. from twelve all the way to two thousand and seventeen, which will make me thirty seven. So you got twenty five years to where you just you got in go mode. Your guardian said you don't stop, so you don't stop. You can't process, you don't process. You, that's not afforded to us. So you, all that stuff I told you and more, you just never process it. So, f- so for a person who has an endure, I would say for myself and most people, <clears throat> the trend to cope is a change of situation, a change of cities, right? So you go middle school, then you change to high school. You go high school, you change to Savannah. You go to Savannah, then you change to Texas. You go to Texas, you change to Memphis. You spend some time in Palestine, Ghana, Greece, Sudan. You see, it's all changing. So that's how you cope. You just change. You just change situations. Hmm. But when you get married, not unless you're going to have like seven marriages, and a lot of people do. You ain't you can't change. So you can't you can endure marriage, but you can't endure marriage. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And and so that was the time where I go, oh, I can't just change this situation and I can't endure this for 70 years. And and the endurance is you don't have high highs, you don't have low lows, so you don't have any joy, you're just enduring. But in my mind, I thought when I got married, I was like, Yeah, I'll just endure marriage until I'm 80, 90, and then I'll be in heaven. That literally was my mindset. No gas. Hmm. And it, it caught up to me. So all that just caught up to me 10 years in. And I literally remember thinking like, I can't, I'm not going to make it like this. Like that literally was my, my thought. Like, I ain't going to make it like this. Like either we not going to be together or I'm just, my body's just going to give out. And you don't know why. So I'm, I'm, what I'm saying now is what I've been able to get in talking with Don. But my mind was like, yo, something's about to give. And, and for those who don't know, Don Furious is, is Adam's counselor. Yeah, there. yeah. yeah. yeah go, go read the book. You'll get some, y'all get some, some gold. But so, so yeah. that's what you said you've gotten from talking with him. Yeah. So when I, when I went to Nepal, it was low. I didn't, I didn't think we'll still be together. I didn't know if my body would make it. I just felt my body just felt, I, I, the term I use is soul tire. I just felt like it was about to collapse at any moment. Right. And I was healthy at the time. I went to the doctor. They're like, nah, you fine. Mm. So I go see Don. Friend recommended, hey, go talk to Don. And um he his first thing he says, he's like, Man, tell me your story. So I tell him everything. And I tell I tell him the long-winded version, like everything. And when I'm done, he goes, Let me say this before I say anything. I am surprised you're still alive. Right. Those, those are his first words. And, I was, mm-hmm. and so in my head, I'm thinking like, yeah, Detroit's tough and yada, yada. And he goes, he goes, Detroit is tough. Like, so the, the literal sense to make it out of Detroit, but he goes, I'm talking at a higher level. He says, your body should have just given out because of the stress and the trauma. It wasn't able to process all this time. And then you start asking because like, Hey, have you ever just felt like, spiritually exhausted or physically exhausted you don't know why i was like yeah i said i feel so tired it's like yeah your body your body is about to give out man because it's not meant to store all that stuff and so i call him don furious don is his name furious is a character out of boys in the hood who is kind of like this wise sage you know and um he just gave me 
eyes to see that one we weren't made to endure. Endurance is a way that we try to preserve ourselves. But he said preservation can only get you so long because God made you for joy and redemption. It's like, so unless you heal, you're not going to experience the joys or the pains. And those are good things that God gave you. He was like, because good pain can lead to joy. And uh, so we just started processing it, man. And, and, and your boy got free, man. It, it was, when I tell you, I did not, I like, and I call them cheat codes because I go, I did not know this was here for my people. I would say black people, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't know it was available. I was like, man, you can have joy this side of heaven, so to speak. He's like, yeah. I go, how? He go, you, you talk about your traumas and your pains. I go, why? He goes, because that's God's standard. That's, that's his idea. I go, really? I thought you just endured because that's all I knew. And I, and I would argue since 1619 when black folks were brought here or, you know, you go Nigeria and be off from a war. I, you yeah. know, I know about that. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of trauma that, you know, your you know ancestors on that side just had to endure. And then that generation is, is, is probably still stuck in, but your generation gets to get free to help that generation get free. Yeah. There's so much, you know, my, 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 my parents were born and raised in Nigeria and they came to America in their early twenties, there's so much that my dad doesn't talk about. Mm. He fought in the Biafran war. He did. And, okay. know, yeah. Yeah. There's so much. And I, like, I want to ask, but also I kind of don't, cause yeah. I don't, I'm like, there's gotta be a reason why you're not talking about it. There's so much talk about trauma. And he's, he's a marriage counselor. He's a, he's got his PhD in psychology. He oh, does for this for okay. a living. Yeah. <laughs> so like, you know, but uh, I think it's really cool because I think God's growing our relationship in some ways where I'm able to yeah. get a little bit closer and deeper and hear more and and share more. But man, trauma, 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 it's got to be got to be processed. It does, doesn't it? Like even that, and even that with your your dad, you know, to close just a thought I had. So Cicely Tyson did an interview with Gail. Uh, Good morning, America. Yeah. You know, Cicely Tyson just passed. Yeah. But in that interview, she talks about a traumatic experience she had with an acting coach, like, um, and how the acting coach, white guy, just made sexual advances towards her. But because of the times, there was no Me Too. She, she, she had to stuff it. Now, watch this. She never talked about that situation until that interview with Gail. She went back to the acting coach the next day because she goes, that's just what you had to do as a black woman trying to make it. You had to put up with it. But watch this. That was the first time she talked about it. And guess what happened? She started crying. Hmm. Because that was the first time she was able to process it. Like, even, even, even in that older age, your body is not meant to keep that in and she let it out because it was a safe space talking to Gail and you, and you saw this release with Cicely Tyson. Hmm. And so I, I, you know, I think, I think sometimes like our, our parents generation and their generation, I think they need, you know, hence to the book, they need permission to be black. And what it means is just permission to express those emotions, those taste buds of the soul 
that the circumstances at the time says you, you don't have permission to process these things. Hmm. So when I say the permission is like, man, you got permission. Uh, it's uh, Isaiah Washington and uh, Michael K. Williams. They were doing their um, genetic tests. And Michael K. Williams wanted to start crying. And he was like, no, nah, man, I ain't going to cry. And Isaiah Washington said what I thought was a great response. He goes, man, let them tears flow, man. You got permission. Let them tears flow. Hmm. And I think a lot of people just need permission to let it flow. It's our time. I honestly believe like prophetically, I think it's, I think it's our time as people of color to let it flow, let those things flow, let it out. So we could be a greater version of ourselves, though we've been dynamic and amazing. I think there's a greater version that the Lord wants from us to therefore to bless society. Hmm. That's huge. Yeah, that's huge. AT man. Thank you so much for, uh, for hopping on with me. Yes, sir. It's good. I appreciate you all for tuning in to the Athletes for Justice podcast. I'm loving these conversations. I hope you all, you all are as well. Uh, as I mentioned, make sure to, to, to follow us on social media, Athletes for Justice, to, to subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends, to, to listen to it, to share it. And also, um, let me know what you all think about it. If it's, if it's resonating, what episodes have really hit home. For me, so many of them hit on different strings on different chords. So let me know what hits home. Thank you all for tuning in. As I mentioned, the link to Adam's book and to my book is below. So you can click on that to our social media to find out more about him and about the podcast and about justice in America. Thank you all so much. 